One thing that particularly struck us about the paper trail interview with the Tulare DAs was the statement that we simply reframe evidence. That's legal code for lying. They're implying that we've been misleading our listeners by misstating or omitting important facts about the evidence, not telling you the whole story. It also suggests some kind of trick, like we're lying tricksters. You know, not straight talkers like they are. Apparently, one of the things we've been lying to you about is the severity of Oscar's knee injury. Moore's report stated, Dr. Florio testified that while Oscar Clifton had been the recipient of three knee operations, he could run without his brace at the same speed as a normal person. Well, that sounds pretty cut and dry. However, we'll go ahead and read the rest of Dr. Florio's testimony. Dr. Florio's testimony at trial, July 7, 1976. In 1970, he was involved in, a, in an automobile accident, and he struck his left knee against the dashboard. This occurred, I think, in December of 1970, and he had pain in his knee for several months. He had an arthrogram performed on his left knee, and it showed a tear of the medial meniscus, or the inner cartilage of the knee. And I took him to surgery in December of 1970, removed the meniscus. He also had a cyst in the capsule. Postoperatively, he didn't do well. He had continual pain. He had another arthrogram performed in August of 1972, and it showed irregular and a tear of the inferior surface of the lateral meniscus, which is a tear of the other side of the cartilage of the knee. He was taken to surgery on the, in September of 1972, where the lateral meniscus was removed. He was noted to have a bleeding disorder, and postoperatively, he had some complications. Since the operation, the bleeding disorder has been diagnosed as a platelet, uh, platelet disorder, and the exact diagnosis is storage pool disease. What does that mean, sir? That means that the platelets which help form the blood clot don't form blood clots. They don't, they don't function adequately, and it's a it's a brand new disease or newly described disease, and it's rather rare. But what happens is that he just has a tendency to bleed more than other people would. Is this internally, externally, or both? Both. Okay, now this lateral meniscus you removed, tell us what that means. Well, the meniscus are two cartilaginous rims that, that sit on each side of the knee, and they protect the sides of the knee when you walk. And when you remove them, you have a tendency to have more arthritis on the other side of the knee. It's a protective device for anatomical protection, like a bumper on a car. It protects the side of the joint from twisting motions. And when they're torn, then they act as an abrasive mechanism, abrasive portions of tissue, and, they, and then they grind away on the side of the joint. When you remove them, you lose this protection, but it's symptomatically better than if you leave them. Now, in this case, has Mr. Clifton's kneecap been removed? Yes, it was. When he jammed it against the dashboard, or when he struck it against the dashboard, the articular surface, or the smooth surface, became irregular, and this was part of the problem too, and that was removed. Now, you've described two operations. Did he have a third? He had a third operation. And what was that, sir? Uh, removal of the patella. Okay, now as a result, when was the last time you examined Mr. Clifton, doctor? On the 15th of October, 1975. And at that time, did you have a diagnosis or recommendation? Well, he went to see a Dr. Blazina, who is a specialist in knee problems. 
he's devised several prosthetic replacements. A prosthesis is a replacement part for joints and organs. And he devised a ligament replacement, and he's, he's like a specialist specialist. Uh, all he operates or treats are knee problems. Did you refer Mr. Clifton to him? Yes. Now, was it you, Dr. Florio, who recommended that Mr. Clifton use a brace in regard to the use of his left leg? Yes, he'd been using a brace for a long time. Now, without the brace, what effect does that have upon his continuing to use his left knee? It would just increase the amount of wear on his knee and cause whatever problems he might have in the future to arrive earlier. The knee in this condition, does it dislocate easily? Not at all. Is he subject to falling? Yes, he could fall more than a normal person would. He would have a tendency toward falling more than a normal person. Did you make any recommendation to Mr. Clifton as to how often he should use be using this brace? Well, he should use it especially when he, when and if he were walking on irregular surfaces, like through fields, or if he were performing any type of occupational work which required long periods of standing, or walking for long distances. With his knee in the condition, his left knee in the condition that it is, is he capable of running? Yes. At any well, would you say he'd be able to run at a similar speed as just a normal person? It would all depend. I would say, yes, he could. All right. Do you remember, is the diagnosis still for Mr. Clifton to have additional surgery in this matter? That would be entirely up to Dr. Blazina. All right, sir. All right. His knee problem is quite complicated in view of the fact that he has a blood dyscrasia or bleeding disorder. I don't feel I should operate on him anymore because of this problem. He also has a knee that I don't think is serious enough to require surgery at this time, but will probably require some type of knee replacement in the future. He's having, he has symptoms from his knee, aches and bothers him, but these symptoms aren't severe enough to cause him to be totally incapacitated. But he is partially incapacitated, isn't he? Yes. Okay, thank you, sir. I have no other questions. Cross-examination by Mr. Powell. Dr. Florio, can he go without his brace? Yes. And can he run without his brace? Yes. And it would be up to him, I take it? I wouldn't recommend that he do these things. No? And it would be up to him. If I understand you then, it was his choice not to participate in physical therapy. He complained of excessive pain when he, when he participated in physical therapy. Thank you. And I would just like to state that th- that is not uncommon. Fine, no further questions. Donahue. Well, in view of his bleeding problem, Dr. Florio, isn't it a fact that when he would take physical therapy, he would again have internal bleeding, which would cause swelling in the leg? He did it first, and this was immediately after surgery. He had swelling in his leg, which persisted for several months. That was in 72 and 3. But over the past year, he, to the best of my recollection in my records, I don't think he's had any swelling or bleeding into his knee. Okay, I have no other questions, Powell. No questions. The court. You may step down, doctor. We haven't spent a lot of time on Clifton's knee in the past because it seems so irrelevant to the case, but now we realize why Powell was obsessed with it in 1976 and Ward can't let it go now. It's not really about Donna's murder. It's to draw a line to the 1965 case. 
They want to portray Clifton as someone who would and could chase, jump on, and wrestle a teen girl into submission. They're trying to match the 1965 testimony. What we've covered extensively in the past is the fact that none of Donna's footprints were found at either the bike scene or Neil Ranch. Donna didn't run or get tackled at either location. At trial, Bird tried to say that there were scuff marks in the dirt by Donna's bike, but Johnson didn't see them or photograph anything that matched that description. The only identified footprints reportedly belonged to Donna's brother and friend who found the bike. We can't view those prints because that match was based on Bird's expert shoe print identification opinion at the scene, and he ordered Johnson not to photograph them. The lack of Donna's footprints by the bike makes sense if the bike was dumped there. But why are they absent at Neil Ranch? We know she was there. Given the lack of blood and mud on her lower clothing, her head injury, and the fact that she had no defensive wounds to her hands, we feel that she was initially attacked in the killer's vehicle. He may have believed she was dead and planned to hide her body on Neil Ranch, only to discover that she was unconscious but still breathing as he moved her from his vehicle to the orange trees. The only sign of blood in the grove was directly under her body, so she was stabbed right there. It didn't really matter if Clifton could run or not. It wasn't at issue in the case. But the DA was clearly worried that the injury would make Clifton look weak and less likely to have won a fight with an athletic team. The point of the DA's assertion, then and now, is that Clifton was lying about his knee. It was all fake, and he was just fine. As we'll talk about later, they also hope to prove that Clifton was not wearing his knee brace on 122675 since the brace had custom-fitted shoes. If his knee was injured and he wore the brace to work, he could not have been wearing the cowboy boots they collected from his closet. We have no doubt about the extent of Clifton's knee injury and the doubling effect that his bleeding disorder had on his pain and chronic swelling. We've seen 40 years of prison records that document his symptoms and treatment, and as we discussed before, the prison system did not cover the cost of his custom knee brace, so he continued to pay for new braces out of his prison earnings up until his death. Visalia PD were also convinced of Clifton's disability and limp, and immediately eliminated him as a VR suspect. Our last word on this subject is this. On December 4, 1973, Clifton obtained a judgment for $122,000 against the driver of the vehicle that caused his knee injury. There was no real debate about the extent of the injury or its disabling effect on Clifton's future earnings. Clifton was working with his attorney in Las Vegas to collect on that judgment right up to the day he was arrested. Needless to say, a man on death row has no future earnings to impair, and the driver who injured him never had to pay a dime. One piece of evidence is glaringly missing from D.A. Ward's report, a murder weapon. Ward did not try to assert in his official report or his press release that Clifton's pocket knife was the murder weapon. So why are there so many appeals briefs and prior statements by Tulare DAs that say that Clifton's knife was the murder weapon? How did the knife even get admitted into evidence at trial? One simple reason. Based on past cases, they were allowed to admit the knife based only on the fact that Clifton had it in his pocket when TCSO arrested him the second time. This is defense attorney Donahue cross-examining Grubb at trial, June 29, 1976. Mr. Grubb, I'm showing you defendant's exhibit Q, which is now in evidence. I ask if you have ever seen that knife before. 
Yes, it's marked with my initials. Is that the knife that you examined at the Institute of Forensic Science? Yes, it is. And when did you make that examination? I'll have to check my notes. That was made on February 12th of this year. All right, would you tell me what you did as far as your examination is of the Exhibit Q is concerned? First of all, I opened up the knife, exposing all the blades, examined them under a stereo low power low power stereo microscope looking for any obvious blood stains. None were found. And as I recall, there were several spots that in my opinion could have represented small amounts of blood and they were tested with a benzidine reagent, which is a presumptive test for blood, and the results were negative, indicating that those small spots were probably deposits of rust in pitted areas on the knife. All right. Now, assuming that this knife had been used to inflict wounds upon a victim approximately 17 times, in order to clean it, that knife, would a simple wiping of the blade be sufficient, in your opinion? It depends on how much blood there is to start with. If the blood is down inside the handle, it's very difficult to remove all of it. If it's simply on the blade, it's rather easy to remove all of it. Okay, but remember now, my point is that this may have been used on 17 different occasions on the same person. In your opinion, do you think you could clean all the blood that was accumulated simply by wiping off the blade? Did you dismantle this knife? No, I did not. You didn't take the handle off? No, I did not. What did you do to ascertain whether... Let me rephrase it. In the bottom of this knife, there appears to be dirt or debris of some kind. Is that correct? Dust collected? Yeah. Did you... Was that debris or dirt? Well, let's rephrase it. What shall we call the stuff that's in the knife handle? Debris. All right. When you received the knife, was the debris there as it appears here today? Yes. What, if any, test did you make of the debris on the side of the knife, on the bottom of the knife, to ascertain whether that debris contained any blood? First of all, I looked inside using a, a stereo microscope and removed any dark brown staining and tested that with directly with the benzidine reagent, although I didn't put any of the reagent inside the knife. Various smaller areas were removed and also probably did a small dry swab of the inside of the handle. Well, do you think that with uh, the test that you ran, is there, had there been any blood on this knife, would it have been revealed by it? Yes, it's a sensitive test. Okay. Did you know at the time that you made the test that this knife might have been involved in this particular action? All I knew is it was a piece of evidence in this case. That's all I knew about it. Well, when you did you receive it with this tag attached to it? Yes. It was your sole purpose in testing this knife to try to find a trace of blood. What? Blood. And for fibers or hair. Right. Belonging to whom? Well, that I wouldn't know until I found it. I mean, if I found blood, then it would be my purpose to determine if it was human and then to try to type it. Okay, to whose blood? It could be compared to the victim. Well, now, Mr. Grubb, wasn't that the sole purpose of your investigation? Yes, that would have been significant in this case. Merely significant, sir? Yes, significant is a good word. All right, let's... Supposing that you found both blood, you found debris, and you found tissue, and you found hair, all of which you could compare and say, this is comparable to the hair of Donna Richmond. Isn't that... wasn't that the purpose of your investigation? Yes, to try and locate such evidence, yes. Morton's Testimony at Trial, June 29, 1976. Donahue. 
Okay, number 62, one brown bone-handled pocket knife. Was a preliminary examination made of that, and by whom? Yes, sir. It was made by Mr. Grubb. And this was done in the Institute of Forensic Sciences? Yes, that's correct. And under your direction? Yes. Mr. Morton, I will show you Defendant's Exhibit Q for identification and ask if you recognize that knife. Yes, this is the knife that was submitted to us as item 62. Okay, and an examination was made of this knife by Mr. Grubb under your direction? Yes, it was. And what was the purpose of the examination of the knife? To determine if there were any blood stains or other types of trace evidence present on the knife. When we say human trace evidence, are we talking about something perhaps from the human body in addition to blood, or what are we talking about? I don't believe I said human. I'm just referring to general trace evidence, fibers, hair, anything like that, tissue. It could be related to the body, could be related to the clothing. All right, what was the result of the test on defendant's exhibit number Q? It was negative. Negative for hair? Yes. Negative for fiber? That's correct. Negative for debris? Yeah. Negative for tissue? Yes. Hearing on admission of the knife, June 28, 1976. Powell. Your Honor, at this time I would make an offer of proof. My offer of proof would be that I could recall Detective King, who would testify that a day or two later that Mr. King went out and arrested the defendant for murder. And when he arrested him, he, meaning the defendant, took from his pocket his pocket knife, which I will show counsel, and we will then propose to place into evidence that pocket knife. My authority for this is found in Witkin on Evidence at page 595, which states in effect as follows. Any weapons found in defendant's possession which could have been used to commit the crime are admissible, and Witkin cites several cases. Also, in the supplemental, it cites several cases. And this, at this point, would only be marked into evidence and identified. Later on, when I have the doctor on, the doctor I propose would testify that the stab wounds could have been caused by a pocket knife. And we have no evidence, direct evidence, saying that this particular pocket knife is the one that did it. We can't prove it one way or the other, but any weapons found in the defendant's possession which could have been used to commit the crime aren't admissible according to that section on Witkin. Donahue. Well, as I understand it, Your Honor, not only did the sheriff's office seize this particular knife, they also seized another knife at the defendant's home, which, as I understand it, was a paring knife. There isn't anything, as counsel has just pointed out, by which they can prove this particular knife had anything to do with this little girl's death. Now they... I think I can go one step further. Mr. Powell would probably agree that that knife was sent to the Institute of Forensic Sciences. It was chemically analyzed, and it was found to contain neither blood, debris, hair, or any human substances on it. So I don't see where this is relevant or material. You might as well go take his whole house full of kitchen utensils and bring them in here because any one of the knives in the kitchen could have done it, I assume. Well, the difference is, as I read that section in Witkin, this weapon was found in his possession, and if it's one that could have been used to commit the crime and found in his possession, then it's admissible so that the jury can draw an inference from it. The court. Yes, I want to take a look at these sections on Witkin. We will recall the jury and proceed with other witnesses at this time. Witkin, 
This is Report of TCSO King, December 27, 1975. 1655 hours. Reporting officer, Detective Holguin, Detective Richmond, Detective Dethridge went to Suspect Clifton's residence and reporting officer placed Suspect Clifton under arrest for investigation of homicide. Suspect at this time began giving his wife his personal property and reporting officer observed Suspect Clifton pull a three-bladed pocket knife, Queen's brand, and bone handled from his right front pants pocket. Due to the fact that victim Richmond had been stabbed, possibly with a knife, reporting officer took possession of said knife and kept it in his possession until it was turned over to Sergeant Hensley of the crime lab. Just to be clear, this isn't the arrest the night that Donna went missing. After Clifton returned home from work on December 26th, he went to his in-laws and then out to dinner in Visalia. After he got home, he got ready for bed and went to sleep. That's where he was when TCSO arrived around 1.30 a.m. the next morning. We have no idea where Clifton's pocket knife was on December 26th. After Clifton was released from TCSO custody later in the morning of the 27th, he went home, showered, got dressed, and put the pocket knife in his pocket. He then turned his attention to Donahue and Pettyjohn and began the work to document his movements on the prior afternoon. At 4.55 p.m., after Donna's body had been found and identified, TCSO returned to arrest Clifton again. That's when they took the pocket knife. Two thoughts here. Why would Clifton immediately go home and put the murder weapon in his pocket? TCSO officers were parked in plain view right outside his house. Also, we're not going to get into a long legal debate, but that's not what the authority Powell cited, Witkin, meant by in the defendant's possession. That presumed that the defendant was arrested at or near the time and place of the crime and still had the weapon on him. Why are we bothering to go over the knife again if Ward's report didn't mention it or try to assert it was the murder weapon? Because, in the paper trail interview, Ward and Alavesos are still trying to make people believe that Clifton's pocket knife is evidence of his guilt. Exeter Sun. They did find blood on, on the knife, and they tested that blood? Alavesos. They found blood on the knife, but um, they were unable to um, get anything beyond that it was blood. Oh, Whose blood? They couldn't even type it? Right. So it was in 19, what would it be, 1976? So I assume that piece of evidence wasn't necessarily available to test for DNA in 2011 then? Well, actually, I should, I need to step back. In 1976, they had not pulled the knife apart. Oh. It wasn't pulled apart until well after the conviction. And when the knife was pulled apart, they were able to find some blood on it, but not enough to do a typing. Okay, right. Yeah. But they did find out, what was the length of the knife? I think that me and Reggie were having this talk yesterday. Was it two inch? Ward. Honestly, I honestly don't know, and I hate to, I hate to be wrong and recorded for all posterity, you know? Alavezos. It was a pocket knife. Yikes. That's a mess, but we'll try to decipher it. First off, the longest blade in the pocket knife, from hilt to tip, was about six centimeters, or less than two and a half inches. We've had those photos posted to our website for almost two years, in case the DA can't find his copy. As you just heard, no blood was found on the knife, or even alleged at the trial in 1976, 
So, yeah, they couldn't type the non-existent blood. Presumably the knife was available for testing in 2011, but Alavezos neglected to mention to the Sun that it wasn't sent to Fresno because it had already been DNA tested in 2002 by Ed Blake. We assume that Alavezos' assertion of blood on the knife was based on Blake's 2002 report, which says, A small quantity of black debris was recovered from the knife upon opening the knife blades. A small quantity of blood was detected in this debris using a sensitive presumptive test. No blood was detected on the outside handle or blade surfaces. The Castlemeyer blood test Blake used is an extremely sensitive test. If the test result is negative, it is reasonable proof that heme is absent in the sample. However, the test will give a false positive result in the presence of any oxidizing agent in the sample. Examples include those naturally found in cauliflower or broccoli. Also, the test does not differentiate between heme molecules of different species. A separate test is required to determine whether blood is of human or animal origin. Powell foreshadowed this issue at trial when he tried to explain why no blood was found on the knife. Any housewife that cuts up a chicken knows that you can wipe off or wash off blood from the paring knife. To be clear, Blake did not run that second test, and there was absolutely no finding of human blood. So, Blake's finding repeated by Alavezos is technically correct, but grossly misleading. Additionally, the test's high sensitivity means that it doesn't take a large amount of contaminant to cause a false positive. From 2001 to 2008, scientific journal articles identified other specific materials that produce strong false positives. Some of these are rust, saliva, Apple, potato, tomato, red onion, red kidney bean, turnip, banana, leek, green bean, carrot, ginger, horseradish, animal flesh, ascorbic acid, bleach, oil-based paint, varnish, any household cleaning product that contains oxidizing agents. Well, let's look at Blake's lab notes and see what he noted. Number four, knife. Envelope holds a pocket knife. Four inches long closed. Three blades. Case is bone slash horn style. Lots of rust, apparent whitish paint slash putty, and black debris. So, let's see. Blake used a test that looks for a reaction to oxidation on a knife which he described as having lots of rust. Well, what is rust? A coating of iron oxide that is formed on iron or steel by oxidation. Hmm, that's weird. It seems as if Blake either didn't know that the Castlemeyer test couldn't be used on rusty samples, or... He was looking for a positive reaction to bolster the DA's case. We'll just move on. Next, Blake turned his attention to DNA testing. He did not have a sample of Donna's DNA to use for comparison, so he used her mother's DNA. That meant that he had to limit the testing to nine specific short tandem repeat genes and the gene that determined gender. Those genes should have shown the same values for both Donna and her mother. The testing showed no values at any of those locations. No human DNA was detected, including Donna's. That was the finding for each of the four swabs taken from inside Clifton's knife. Each one was DNA tested, and each one failed to find any trace of Donna's DNA, or female DNA. Blake never should have been allowed to touch one piece of evidence in this case on appeal. 
His one sentence at trial about finding semen was the basis for Clifton's death sentence and 40 years of parole denials. His role during the 2002 round of testing was to confirm his own prior findings and maintain Clifton's conviction. Additionally, Blake designed the testing of Clifton's knife to reach as few conclusions as possible. He specifically refused to do any test that would have determined if the blood were human, its ABO type, or whether it belonged to a male. He also refused a sample of Clifton's DNA and would not test the supposed blood against it to determine if it was Clifton's own blood on his knife. The fact is, we can say for certain that Donna's DNA was not present on Clifton's knife when Blake tested it in 2002. We don't know if the substance tested was in fact blood or rust, if it was human, what ABO type it was, if it belonged to a male or female, or if it matched Clifton's DNA. We don't know because Blake was very careful not to do any testing that would answer those questions. So, if Donna's DNA was not found on Clifton's knife, why would Warden Alavesos mention Blake's presumptive test for blood? Because it sounds scary and important. It's technically true, but leaves out all of the other critical information. They know that they're being misleading. That's why they didn't put it in the written report. We'll keep repeating this. Making misleading statements about facts is dishonest and not acceptable behavior from any attorney. By the way, it's worth listening to that episode of The Paper Trail just to hear Ward say twice that D'Angelo's blood was found on Clifton's knife. <laughs>